On this episode of News World, what really happened in the 2020 election? Millions of Americans who experienced the most troubling election of their lives really want answers. In her new book, national best-selling author and award-winning journalist Molly Hemingway reveals the stories that affected the outcome of the election. Her book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections, is a thorough accounting of how the left-wing media, Democratic leaders, and big tech oligarchs colluded to create an election system designed to defeat Trump and future Republican candidates. And I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Molly Hemingway. She's a co-author of the national bestseller, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. She's a senior editor of the online magazine, which I recommend highly, The Federalist, which she helped launch, and she's a Fox News contributor. Molly, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Speaker Gingrich. I'm curious, you're one of the few members of the media who was able to obtain multiple interviews with former President Trump. Can you tell us about some of the other sources you spoke to in developing this? Yeah, when I wrote Justice on Trial with my co-author, Carrie Severino, we interviewed more than 100 people to get the story of how that confirmation went down. And I knew I wanted to do a similar approach with the 2020 election, even as crazed and nationwide and complicated as it was. And so I did get to interview President Trump three times, and that was very helpful, but also just many people in the campaign, the Republican National Committee, and then quite a few people at the state level and local election officials, because so much of what happened occurred at the state and local level, and it was important for me to understand what they were dealing with. And so I found that insight from these people, whether they were really high level or whether they were you know, local election attorneys figuring stuff out in Philadelphia, the whole thing was helpful. You know, it's really interesting as I think back over the years. I think the last time Democrats actually accepted the legitimacy of losing in a presidential campaign was in 1988 when George H.W. Bush won by a huge margin. The fact is that in 2000, they smeared President George W. Bush and kept saying that he was selected, not elected. When Bush won re-election in 2004, Many on the left claimed that voting machines in Ohio had been rigged to deliver fraudulent votes. And after the 2016 election, the political and media establishments claimed Russian collusion as to why Trump won, which I always thought was because nobody could actually walk in and tell Hillary to her face that she was a terrible candidate. Why do you see this constant pressure on the left to not accept election outcomes? Well, this situation has been bad for a while. As you know, the Democrats haven't fully accepted election results for presidential elections they've lost. But the 2016 situation really deserves focus. That was one where they couldn't accept that they lost to the point that they spread this completely insane conspiracy theory that they hadn't lost, that Donald Trump had colluded with Russia to steal the election. And this wasn't something that was just a fringe theory that a few people held to. This was embraced by the entire corporate media environment, the entire Democrat Party, frankly, even some 
squishy Republicans were buying into this. They kept that drumbeat going for years. It was based on nothing, and it was very damaging to the Republic. And then these same individuals who did this for years gave each other awards for how they spread this conspiracy theory, then said that in 2020, an election unlike any one we've ever seen in this country, with hundreds of changes to laws and procedures, with COVID and with the media going from bias to outright propaganda, with tech companies meddling in the election in so many horrifying ways, Then they said, you can't have any questions about the election. And it's that combination of how crazed and conspiratorial they were from 2016 through November 2020, combined with their refusal to allow any discussion of very real shenanigans and problems that I think is so striking. Well, and their reaction to all this was to write what they call H.R. 1, which would actually make the whole election process more corrupt. It's striking to me that both the Caltech-MIT Voting Technology Project back in 2001 said that the greatest fraud problems may lie in absentee balloting. And in 2005, a bipartisan commission, ironically co-chaired by Jimmy Carter, found that absentee balloting was the largest source of potential fraud in American elections. And the reaction of the Democrats is to maximize the likelihood of millions and millions of people voting absentee. What do you ascribe to their underlying passion for trying to create the maximum opportunity for vote theft. Right. Up until about a year ago, everyone acknowledged that mail-in balloting was the largest source of fraud or just other election irregularities. That was true in the United States, where the New York Times and the Washington Post used to say it. It's true in France, where they actually banned mail-in balloting because of so many problems with fraud. And Then it became Democrats' strategy. And I think the strategy has a few different reasons behind it. One is that there really is a partisan divide in willingness or eagerness to vote by mail. I don't fully understand why this is, but it is very striking that Republicans are extremely hesitant to trust a vote-by-mail process, whereas Democrats tend to have confidence in it. And so if you privilege vote by mail and its insecurity over other forms of voting, you're really privileging the Democrat Party. And there is also the issue that it became strategy just because the chaos is actually the point. Mark Elias, who's someone that I talk a lot about in the book, is this Democrat attorney. He was at Perkins Coie, this very big Democrat firm that was the pass-through for the Russia hoax. They're the ones who hired the people who created the Russia hoax. They took Hillary Clinton's money, Democratic National Committee money, and they invented this false and damaging smear that did so much damage to the country. Mark Elias is also the guy who ran the strategy to wildly expand mail-in balloting at the same time that scrutiny of mail-in ballots was eliminated or seriously decreased. And I think it's because that's the point. They want to create chaos. They want to have uncertainty. They want to have a much larger sphere of litigation where they can battle things out. Elias has a history of winning races that he lost, by which I mean, if you remember the Al Franken Senate election where he lost that race, but Mark Elias came in and was able to litigate his way into a victory. That was a significant victory because it gave Democrats the supermajority they needed to pass Obamacare. And so it's a feature for them. The chaos, the confusion, the disruption, the illegality is a benefit. That's what they're going for. It's fascinating. I mean, Elias himself is 
one of the central figures in the corruption of the American system. His fingerprints are almost everywhere. They were certainly in Georgia. He apparently is sort of the chief lawyer for creating corrupt elections, and Democrats across the country recognize his importance. And I think that's his focus. It's absolutely his focus. He has a long history of doing it. He's been involved on a lot of races. He has no qualms about taking completely contradictory positions. For instance, when he was trying to steal Claudia Tenney's victory in a New York congressional race in 2020, he was claiming that Dominion voting systems were hackable and corrupt. But then he'll mock people who say that on the other side of things, because his goal is simply winning for Democrats. If he's on the upside of a close recount, he will denounce recount efforts. If he's on the downside of a recount, he'll be very tenacious in his fight to enable a recount. But he has this whole army of help, too. It's kind of easy to win when you have a lot of money and power behind you. And because he's been general counsel for so many prominent Democrats and so many Democratic organizations, and he has all of these left-wing groups that are willing to, you know, he'll file the lawsuit, but he'll just take one of their names off the shelf and get them to pretend that they're the ones who are actually fighting to decrease election security. And Republicans really have not done that. Now, partly they haven't done that for reasons of their own failure. But partly, I also get into this in the book, they've had some legal challenges that made it impossible for them to do election day operations and oversight for nearly 40 years. And I know you probably are aware of this, but I had no idea that they were under this consent decree arising from a conflict in the early 1980s in New Jersey, where they weren't allowed to do any election day oversight until 2018. They kept on having this continued because there was this very lefty judge who kept keeping them under this consent decree. And he even took senior status where he retained some of his old cases just so he could keep it going. And it's just insane. Republicans were fighting with both hands tied behind their back. They had no ability to do litigation until 2018. They almost had it continued even at that point because Sean Spicer literally was on the wrong floor of Trump Tower one day and they almost extended the consent decree even longer. So there just wasn't that muscle memory with Republicans. There's not the money that Elias and his team of Democrat attorneys have. And also there was a lack of creativity and innovation and you know strategy behind it too. Yeah, I mean, I'm very struck that the Democratic lawyers tend to be tougher and more ruthless and more experienced and candidly just smarter than the Republican lawyers. It's kind of odd. They're willing to do things that Republicans aren't, and that might be to Republicans' credit, but this is warfare and it's politics and you have to be tough. Well, I mean, in Georgia, where you look at the consent decree there and the agreement that they got with Stacey Abrams, which was Mark Elias, again, you have a national level player coming in dealing with Georgia Republican lawyers who are simply out of their league. They're not ready to deal with somebody of his experience and his power. And I talked with some of them about why they agreed. So what happened there is Mark Elias came in and sued the secretary of state. It's a common strategy Elias and other Democrats use. All election law changes are supposed to happen through the state legislature, but sometimes you don't have a friendly state legislature who will be willing to go along with your plot. And so he would sue 
a state official and get them to settle. Now, usually he was doing that against Democrat state officials. In Georgia, he did it with a Republican state official and the Republican agreed to it. And that was one of many things where Georgia was a frustrating mess compared to other states. And partly though, it wasn't just Raffensperger who agreed to that. There were other Republicans who counseled him to agree to it. Their thinking was, and I think this really speaks to what you're saying, if we agree to this, then judges will go easy on us in later battles. I mean, this is not an approach that Democrat attorneys take. They go for the jugular every single time, and then they win, you know, however many they win. Republicans sort of take this defensive posture like there's something wrong with election security, when in fact it actually is very important for the survival of the republic. They apologize for it, or at least they did in Georgia. I talked with Florida officials, and they said that when people came after them to weaken their election integrity and they claimed that election integrity is racist, they told them all to buzz off. But in Georgia, for some reason, it worked, and they all kind of cowered and decided to agree to a weakening of mail-in balloting verification. I don't think they realized at the time how many ballots would come out that way. But then they did other stuff they weren't even being asked to do, like mailing out to every single address on the list an application for a mail-in ballot. They didn't need to do that. Or if they did it, they could have combined it with some kind of security measure, like the applications could have come back if the address was undeliverable. You know, they were sending them out first-class mail. This should have been something they could have done. There's just a lot of really weird and, frankly, stupid <laughs> decisions made by the Georgia Secretary of State's office. And I get into it in great detail in the book, but it was frustrating because I think they should have known better. Well, that's what I'm struck with. That the Georgia a series of agreements were like amateur city. I mean, you couldn't quite figure out why they would agree to set up to rig a game. I, I tell people I don't believe that the election was stolen on election day. I think the whole election was rigged, and the rigging was like a year-long process. I mean, that's where your book is perfect, and is actually what Trump should pick up on. I mean, you know, instead of talking about stealing the election on election day, he really ought to be talking about this was the most rigged election in American history, and I think your book really helps make that case. And it's not just what we're talking about with Elias and weakening protections. It's so much more. And it was all coordinated. I talk in the book about how Mark Zuckerberg, one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful men, spent $419 million to do a private takeover of government election offices. This is another issue where Georgia plays a huge role because Georgia got more funding than any other state, you know, relative to its population. It gets $45 million in what are called Zuckerberg bucks or Zuck bucks. And what he did is he funded these left-wing organizations, and then they in turn funded predominantly Democrat counties and swing states. They brought in an army of people to do voter registration, targeted voter registration in Democrat-heavy areas, ballot design, ballot translation, ballot counting, ballot harvesting, ballot everything. And they went into a system that is supposed to be scrupulously nonpartisan. And you, again, compare just because it's an easy example. You compare Florida, which got a little bit of Zuckerberg funding, but not nearly as much as Georgia. That state goes two points to the right for Republicans. Trump won by one. He wins by three in 2020. Georgia goes from, what, 
five points for Trump to one point for Biden. It's a massive change. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand that they were embedding into the system, that they were artificially driving up votes in blue areas and not red areas, and that this was a very partisan takeover of government election offices. And I just want to say again, unlike every other state where you see this, it was the Republican Secretary of State's office that thought it would be a great idea to bring these people in to run Democrat get-out-the-vote operations from inside the system. It's just mind-boggling. Having been active in campaigns for a very, very long time, I don't understand how somebody can spend over $400 million to affect an election, and it's not a violation of campaign law. So there were some challenges before the election where people suspected something was wrong, but judges tended to say, well, they're funding both Democrat and Republican counties. And that was true. Like, in Pennsylvania, they funded Republican counties to the tune of like $5,000, literally $5,000. Philadelphia, $10 million. So technically bipartisan, but not in any meaningful sense. Even when you adjust for population, they were strategic in how they did it, but it was hard to detect because a lot of this information only became clear after the election. And now researchers are looking into what the effect of this partisan funding was, and they are finding a very partisan effect. So there was this team of researchers in Texas. They were really interested because they are Texas-based, so they were interested in how it affected Texas. They did Bayesian analysis. These economists did a very highly sensitive way of analyzing the data to determine what the effect of this funding was and determined that it yielded 200,000 more votes for Biden than if it hadn't happened. And you think, well, Texas safely for Trump and Republicans. Republicans had a great year in Texas. So what's the big deal? Well, you might remember in 2018, Ted Cruz won by only just over 200,000 votes, a statewide race. 200,000 votes is massive. And all it takes in Georgia is 11,000 votes. And they spent $45 million in Georgia. Do you think it was enough to have the election go the opposite way? It's not even in question. It's such a big effect that this had. Well, and frankly, I'm worried very much about the governor's race in Virginia for the same reason. Fairfax County has already announced that they're going to report late, which means, of course, they'll let the rest of the state run up Youngkin's majority, and then they'll try to find enough extra votes to offset it, even if those votes involve people who aren't real. I think Virginia has been a test case for Democrats in many ways. They have this early off-year election. And so what happened four years ago was they took over the state legislature through very targeted funding and voter efforts. And sometimes they're doing it in violation of the law. There are all sorts of lawsuits flying about right now. Of course, judges don't like to get involved in election disputes prior to elections. And then they also don't like to get involved after elections. And it's creating a complete mess because Again, the Democrat strategy is chaos and confusion. And you read some of the Supreme Court opinions or, you know, when they would decide not to hear an opinion, sometimes the judges would offer some thoughts on that. And I think it was Thomas who said that he was very opposed to not hearing a case. Their grounds were that it was moot because it wouldn't affect the outcome of the election in this particular case. And he said, that's why we should hear it. We should, of course, clarify these issues when it's not going to have a profound effect one way or the other, because there are elections coming up 
where we need to clarify, is it legal to do this or not legal to do that? And you have counties in states across the country where you see a disparate reaction to the law. So again, in Pennsylvania, they say you're not supposed to check ballots before election day. But the Trump campaign figures out that they are checking ballots before election day in some Democrat counties, by which I mean they are looking at the outer envelope to see if everything's filled out correctly and taking it back to voters if it's not. Republican-led counties viewed that as illegal. Democrat counties were able to do it. Well, that disenfranchises the voters in the Republican-led counties. You know, So it's all these problems where you need to clarify specifically, can you do this or can you not do that? Sometimes Republicans would be fine with learning that the law doesn't apply so long as it's clear so that if they do it, they don't get in trouble. When I finally understood the scale of what Zuckerberg had done, it's a breathtaking assault on the whole system. And it may be technically legal because he has really good lawyers, but it clearly goes against the entire spirit of the Constitution and the entire spirit of American law. But what was even more visible and obvious, and is going on to this very day, the degree to which the Silicon Valley oligarchs are enthusiastic about censoring conservatives and censoring people that they don't agree with. There's one thing when they knock Trump off before the election, even though he was the incumbent president of the United States and went on to receive well over 73 million votes. So the Taliban has a spokesman on Twitter, but Trump doesn't. If you think about it, it's kind of astonishing. It's such totalitarian and terrifying stuff happening there. Again, I think back to the 2016 election where the media and other Democrats claimed that the entire election was in question because Russians had bought like $100,000 in Facebook ads, some of which targeted Trump, some of which targeted Hillary Clinton. Compare that paltry spending with what big tech did when they all openly stated after the 2016 election that they would never let what happened happen again. And what they meant by that was because the media were so corrupt, Donald Trump was able to take his message directly to the American people through social media. So they felt guilty that if people actually were able to hear from a candidate that they might vote for him. So they said that they would squash his messaging. And they did. And they did it in multiple ways. They censored and deplatformed non-leftist voices, particularly the ones that were effective, meme makers and publishers and people that really are important for freedom of information. They gamed their algorithms to suppress conservative speech and elevate leftist speech. And they also did that most horrifying thing. Or, you know, they're even like censoring the president himself when he would say mail-in balloting has some problems and they would censor it and they would say this isn't true, even though it's true. You could have any kind of crazy conspiracy theory on the left, like you had prominent people claiming that the post office was engaged in a conspiracy against Joe Biden. That wouldn't get flagged. Only President Trump's tweets would be flagged. And the worst thing for me was the Hunter Biden story, which is inarguably something Americans had a right to know about before they voted. This was about the Biden family business, which near as we can tell is that foreign leaders and oligarchs give lots of money to members of the Biden family, and we're really not sure why. And that should raise suspicions. You know, why is this crack-addled nincompoop getting so much money from foreign oligarchs? What are they getting in return for it? That should have been a major source of journalistic inquiry, and it was either a minor source or ignored or brutally suppressed. And that alone affects how many millions of votes by not sharing that information. 
the degree to which the Biden family is corrupt and the degree to which the system is corrupt in protecting their corruption is sort of a real challenge to the whole basis of America, I think. I find, by the way, if we send out pictures, which my wife, Callista, loves to do, they get really big responses. If we send out a thought piece, it gets a much smaller response because it's suppressed. And they apparently, for some reason, don't suppress the pictures, but they do suppress the written material. That's going on right now. And it's a perennial fight, mostly with Google, but then secondarily with Facebook. Not much with Twitter at the present time for some reason. And they're more powerful than the most powerful government in the world, the United States. They were able to deplatform the sitting president and face no repercussions. And I think a lot of Americans look at this. I mean, even a lot of foreigners looked at this and said, this is horrifying, but they're not seeing an appropriate level of reaction from the leadership that they think should be there. I understand that Democrats, because of the way that they handled this election, won the presidency, the Senate and the House. But that doesn't mean that Republicans don't exist anywhere. A lot of Americans are wondering, why are we not seeing more of a pushback to some of these totalitarian measures, this dystopic communication environment that you would associate more with Soviet Russia than the United States of America? To what extent are you worried that in 22 and 24, we're going to see the same kind of deliberate rigging of the election? Well, I think it's important that people think that way, thinking forward. People say, oh, you shouldn't talk about this. It's in the past. It's over. Well, it's not over. A lot of the changes that they made are affecting all elections going forward. And if you want to have election security and confidence in elections and a meaningful system where the entire system isn't rigged, you have to care going forward. But I'm actually somewhat optimistic about where we are now versus where we were a few years ago the awareness people have of how important election integrity is, is just off the charts compared to where it was a couple of years ago. You have people more involved. You have people actually working to ban certain practices that threaten the integrity of the system, like the private takeover of government election offices or decreased scrutiny for mail-in ballots. So these issues aren't new. You think about the Democrat Party disenfranchised an entire race of people in the South Jim Crow laws where they didn't want black people voting. And so they had all these means of manipulating the system and we targeted it and we worked on it and we fixed it. And so people shouldn't despair over it. This is a part of our history that people with power like to disenfranchise other people and call it election integrity when it's not. And so people are aware and working on it. And there's a lot more interest and even money because I think money is required for this battle. I hope the money is being spent smartly. But Democrats really have a really great coordinated system in place to weaken election integrity. And it's important that the rest of the country have resources to fight it. When you look back at the totality of your research, do you think it's fair to say that the 2020 election was in fact rigged? I love the title. And I had actually thought before the election that the corruption of the media and big tech alone created a system that was not 
free or fair. And you look at international election observers, and they say that if you're in a propaganda environment, if people don't have freedom of information, if they are threatened physically for their political views, you know, all things that we experienced in spades in the years prior to 2020, then you don't have a free and fair election. Once I actually researched what happened with the election laws and processes and private funding, I mean, it's not even close to being in question. It was no way to run an election. We cannot have a country survive if we do this in the future. And it's very important that people do what it takes to clean things up. I had talked with President Trump about changing from stolen to rigged before your book came out. Has he talked to you about it? Your book is the perfect text for what I think he should say, which is on behalf of the American people, he had challenged the entire national establishment And the national establishment, literally from election night on in 2016, set out to destroy him. I think you have to go back to Andrew Jackson to see a fight this deep, not counting the Civil War, which is a different kind of animal, but a power struggle between the establishment and a genuine upsurge in populism. And obviously, he's not going away. And I think as people read your book and begin to really think about, you've got to be very angry that people like Zuckerberg think that they have the right to dictate to the American people and to rig the game on behalf of their ideology and their values. It's exactly the opposite of the American model. So what I found interesting about interviewing President Trump is that, and I know you probably know this better than I do, he actually understands all these issues and talks about them He knows in detail what they did, and he knows why. He understands the big picture, that they were willing to do whatever it took. When that Time magazine article came out that confessed the crime, you know, they called it election fortifying, but of course it's election rigging. It was about the cabal of left-wing elites who did everything it took and threw out every norm in order to ensure that Donald Trump wasn't reelected. He gets all of that. He understands the complexity of the situation. And then when he publicly talks about it, he puts it in terms of theft. And I understand that he likes to simplify arguments. And I don't give advice to politicians. That's not my role. But I think partly the problem is the accurate story is such a complicated story. But it's actually really important because, like we're talking about, they're going to keep doing it going forward. But that's where your book's helpful, because your book begins to make obvious and begins to have the factual presentation that you can't get in a 30-second television commentary. I'm curious, what's your advice to both conservative activists and publications and to conservative candidates for 2022, given what you've learned? One of the big problems right now is that corporate media have successfully kept people from talking about what really happened. And I personally believe that's because they want to run the same operation again. So I think reframing the conversation around what actually happened and being bold in defense of the idea that elections have to have security if you have a republic. You know, democracy depends on the consent, not of the winners, but of the losers. Winners always accept election results. Losers need to have confidence in the election results in order for the republic to survive. So I think focusing the conversation on what actually can be done and getting it done And also just reminding people the consequences of not having election integrity. We have, because of the way we ran this election, uniparty control in the country. It has not even been a year, and the country is really suffering. And so all of these issues are connected, and they need to be thought through in a connected fashion if people want to save the republic going forward. I just have to ask you, before I let you go, have you picked a new book yet? (laughs) 
I actually just had this realization after this book. This book is selling well. And so I thought, oh, I've co-authored a book that was a bestseller. And now I've authored a book that's a bestseller. And I guess I'm an author now. It took me two books to realize that I write books. Right. Well, for me, it's like after having a baby, you say, I'm never going to do this again. And then a little while later, you're like, wouldn't another baby be nice? So in this case, I'm at the point of thinking I'll never write another book, but we'll see what happens in a year. I wrote a lot on the Russia collusion hoax as a reporter. I researched that and I'm very proud of the work I did and the work we did at The Federalist. I kind of am waiting for that story to conclude so that I can write a book about the whole thing and make sense and order of it. But it just keeps dragging on, so I don't know how long I'm going to have to wait. I was going to say, you could write a book called The Hoax About the Russian Hoax. It really is sort of a variation on Churchill's, an enigma wrapped in a riddle. It is unbelievable that the country endured that. It's the journalistic story of the millennium, and people just aren't covering it because they were participants in it. And so those of us who did figure it out pretty early that it was a hoax and that it was a lie, we had to do a lot of work with not a lot of resources, but we were able to get the true story out. And I'm you know, so proud to have been a part of that. But it reminds you of how corrupt some government actors are, some politicians are, and how they engage in this corrupt behavior. It wasn't just a one-off. It's literally the same team that did that, that did to our 2020 elections what they did. Right. And the depth of just brazen dishonesty by some of the members of Congress, for example, it's breathtaking how willing they were to go out and lie and make no bones about it. Why not? Have there been any repercussions? Adam Schiff claimed that he had evidence of collusion between Trump and Russia. That was a lie. And he has not been held accountable. And the corporate media still reward him and treat him as if he's a credible source. There's no downside to lying in this country. They operate on the premise that the narrative is more important than the fact. Yeah. It's amazing. They have the political power to show for it, too. Listen, I want to thank you for joining me. You've done something really important and really complicated. The fact that you slowed down, actually took apart what happened, put it together in an understandable form. I think everybody who has any doubt about the 2020 election ought to purchase a copy of Rigged, how the media, big tech, and the Democrats seized our elections. We're going to have a link to the book on our show page. I look forward to whatever you write next, and I look forward to everything you write at The Federalist and seeing you on Fox. So it's really, Molly, a terrific thing that you would come and be willing to share with us. Thank you so much, and it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you to my guest, Molly Hemingway. You can get a link to buy her new book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections, on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.